Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Friday, November 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is the day after Thanksgiving. The gist staff has the day off. We didn't want to leave you without programming, quality programming. What if you had nothing to listen to? So what we did was we put together a compendium of the reporting I did in Israel last week. If you listen daily, then yes, you'll have heard these stories on the show, but I think that Putting them together in one place, I don't know, could be convenient or maybe gives them a little bit of a different meaning, tells a little bit of a story. My time in Israel, people ask, how was it? It's hard to give an answer that portrays how positive it was without also portraying how horrific the events, of course, were. So I use words like eye-opening or it was totally transformative. What I really mean, and what I think I say, and I get at this a little bit in these reports, is that without being too grandiose, it's just important. It's important for people who do shows like mine, who try to think rigorously about the world events, who bring people like you guys in my audience information, and also try to distill a little wheat from the chaff, try to distill what is fact from what is not, try to give you something new and not something cliche. It's important when you can to do everything you can to find out the best information you can. So that's what I think that I was doing. It really informed my understanding of what's going on in Israel. I also know, I'm aware that some of the deficits of the trip, it was a a quick but intense trip. I was in the country for about 60 hours. I, and it's not an exaggeration, I slept for about nine hours of my entire time there. This wasn't because I was so upset I couldn't get to sleep. I was just working on shows and getting up early and going to kibbutzim and meeting with officials. But I also know that the officials that I didn't meet with were, say, representatives of the Palestinian Authority. And while I talked to all manner of people with opinion, I didn't specifically talk to the small faction of Israelis who do not want the military to be involved in Gaza. So what I'm doing and what I have been doing is trying to seek out those voices. But here now, is a compendium of the reporting that I did from my week there. If you want to understand the trauma of the Israelis, I don't just direct you to Ben Zeman, who serves in the Israeli military's rabbinate division. So he takes in the bodies, he identifies them, prepares them, purifies them. The trauma isn't in the number of bodies, which have been over a thousand from the day he started last month. The trauma isn't in this self-described sensitive guy whose job it was to handle so many bodies. The trauma may be best understood in what could not be understood. So most of Ben's colleagues couldn't continue on with their job. They weren't trained or prepared for what they saw on October 7th. 
So they did what they say you should do. They talked about their trauma, the trauma they couldn't process, even though it was their job. They talked about it with people for whom talking about it was their jobs. And here's what Ben's colleagues found. Close to half of my friends couldn't, couldn't take anymore. One of them actually went to a psychologist two weeks ago, and after 20 minutes he said, I'm really sorry, I can't, I can't help you. I can't hear your, your stories. You'll have to find someone else. Who else? Everyone else in this country of 10 million. Ben is a rabbi, a member of the military, an Israeli. He lived for a time in the U.S., Memphis, Tennessee, not Egypt, and he says that he was able to do this job better than most. So we were there standing in a cold, cold room with a wooden platform about a foot and a half off the floor. It was draped with an Israeli flag. There was a wreath on it. Ben has laid body after body on this platform, and he says he didn't cry for many days. From the Sunday after the attack through Thursday, Ben said he didn't cry, and then... My son was like playing hide and seek, and he, he sort of covered himself with, uh, with, with a sheet, basically, and I just burst out crying. This is a country both at the limits of their mental capacity, yet in a way totally focused. No one I talk to differs on this one conviction. They say the war must be won, Hamas must be brought to justice, which means destroyed. But there's this other thing that I have never seen in any society. On the one hand, you have national unity behind a national cause. That happens. That happens in a time of war. But also, to a person, there is this belief, this knowledge, that once the objectives are met, the very leader in charge of what will have been a successful mission, that leader must go. So many, many people are so very upset, livid, with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. They're of the firm belief the leader in charge of this war needs to go. Now, perhaps you've heard of Major General Noam Tiban. In a country of heroes, he's one of the most prominent. He's a 62-year-old retired major general, and Tiban got the call from his son on October 7th. His son lives in a kibbutz near Gaza. We are under attack from terrorists, the WhatsApp message said. Stay in the safe room. I will come, said the father. And so he went, drove down 70 miles from Tel Aviv. He saved, his wife was with him. They saved many others who were under attack. They fought alongside forces they met along the way. And as he told 60 Minutes, eventually they entered his son and grandchildren's kibbutz. He relied on his training. He acted methodically. Basically, the Hamas was in control. And, they, you know, we started to get in and we saw bodies, some of them terrorists, some Israelis. On this situation, you have to, to work very, very focused. Okay, you have to clean one house and then go to the next house and then go to the next house because if you run too fast, they will shoot you from the behind. Tabone wound up saving his son, his daughter-in-law, his granddaughters. He has become a household name, though he was well-known before. And what does Noam Taban say for this place of respect? How does this national hero use his credibility to say that Netanyahu has to go? He will lead the war effort, Taban told me, and then he must go. Echoing that was Nadav Argaman, the former head of Shin Bet, which is Israel's intelligence service. 
There are three reasons for the intelligence failure the country saw on October 7th, says the man who is Benjamin Netanyahu's appointee from 2016 to 2021. There was the failure to convince the right people of Hamas's cruel intentions. There was the avoidance of responsibility. There was the fracturing of Israeli civil society. And the blame for all three, it goes on the shoulders of his former boss. Argument has a pretty creative plan to maybe one day reconstitute Gaza as a man-made island out in sea. It's amazing what they do with this kind of technology these days. Debate that if you wish, he says. Netanyahu's culpability, beyond debate. So Dan Senor, the former Bush administration official, is out with a book called The Genius of Israel. I'll give away what the genius is. It's solidarity. It's a country where the government does not work well for the people, but social ties surmount that. And I've seen that over and over since I've been here. In a way, the most polarizing presence is the prime minister. And he has shown guile and cunning. He can play the factions off each other. But now there's no more factionalization. The factions are gone. Their solidarity, which may seem to an outsider to be, oh, a people united under a leader, under Netanyahu. In fact, I think they're uniting right through him. We'll see. There is a war to fight. There is a nation to heal. There is a world to appeal to while knowing that that's almost impossible. So in the next few days, I aim to bring you different stories of Israel and Israelis. But someone said to me, what's the one thing we're not understanding here in America? What's the thing that strikes you? And the trauma is heavy and the war aims are large and the war efforts are ongoing seemingly successful, but at the same time, the more success there is military, the more costs there are in terms of public opinion and world opinion. That's all true. It's all interesting. I think to large degrees, it's what America knows. I found it very interesting to see the disconnect of this unified people under a leader who they need to execute their greatest aim but they also are convinced is most responsible for their worst moment. That was the first day. The next day was a report that I did, which, which included meeting the relatives of hostages and a moment where the former head of Mossad entered the same briefing that a couple of the relatives of hostages were at, and just the discordance between the one guy saying, can't we just appeal to the better angels of human nature? And the head of Mossad humoring him, saying, well, we'll do whatever we can to commit to the angelic role of the deliverance of your relatives. Daphne Sella is guiding a crowded conference room through a presentation positioning a mouse over a picture on a screen. On October 7th, I was on my way back home from my honeymoon. Um, and as we landed in Turkey, we had a connected flight. Um, we got dozens of messages uh, about what started to happen in the kibbutz near the border. Um, 
Five weeks ago in this Tel Aviv office building, someone sitting in her chair, positioning that mouse, directing the attention of the people in this room, might have been highlighting sales figures or pointing to a new product line. Today, and for the last few weeks, the workings of this building have been dedicated to the hostage advocacy group Bring Them Home. It's more than a group. It's really a national movement. It's really the nation. Daphna is talking about her cousin, Lilak Kipnis. And our entire family is like that. Um, Strong people who care about human rights. She was among the approximately three dozen kidnapped from Kibbutz Beri, close to Gaza. Daphna's cousin, Orshel, next to her, speaks about another relative. Our cousin, uh, Shoshan. She's now held hostage. Uh, She founded a an NGO called Fair Planet. Uh, What they do is teach uh, farmers in Africa how to grow edible plants that are adequate to the climate there. Uh, Or a blonde music producer, and Daphna, whose brown hair cascades alongside her downcast face, are committing to a strategy that we've seen before. We saw it in Silence of the Lambs, or any time there's an amber alert and a grieving mother addresses a camera. You humanize the hostages. You make them real. You make the hostage takers care. You make the world pay attention. Daphna moves on to her cousin, Yehel Ghani Shoham. She is only three years old. Yehel smiles out from under an explosion of curls that frame her face like sunshine. I don't think you need to say much when you see this picture, but I keep thinking... Is she getting the food she needs in order to develop? Um, Is she getting the hug she needs? Is she with her mother? It is hard to know which of the messages work, if any do. Two of the Sela's cousins have been released. They're the Americans Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie. But they're Americans. That must have played a role. Soon, the meeting has an unexpected visitor. Children with trauma who live um, in the kibbutzes or, or near the border and suffer from... It's Yossi Cohen, the previous head of the Mossad, Israel's CIA. Cohen is now speaking from the vantage point of a negotiator. He acknowledges that the Qataris are less than perfect intermediaries, but they are what Israel has to work with. Okay, to go see the Emir, Muhammad, I mean, people that I know for many years, I've been there. Speaking to them privately about our needs is unique to me, right? When you know that there is only one negotiator and it is now them. Because they could have told you or me, you know what? Okay, we're not doing it anymore. Or we don't have any interest in doing it from now on. Cohen says the elements that might convince Hamas, as mediated through Qatar, to release hostages are one, embarrassment, two, hopelessness on the battlefront, and then or breaks in. I'm not a strategic guy, he says, uh, but continues. But if, if I may suggest a third, a third option, uh, which is human beings are human beings, and people from Hamas has families, and although we, we all, all want to, to see the enemy as, as someone who is not human at all, but every human being has some humanity in, their, in, in them. 
Yes, yes, of course, says Cohen, as a cell phone rings and an aide rushes to take the call. We will use all levers. We will use the fact that so many hostages have other passports, and those countries want them back. As the aide tugs on his sleeve metaphorically with pleading eyes. But yes, says Cohen, all good points. Orsella's eyes are darting back and forth in his head as he tries to come up with what he's saying next. You could tell he cannot believe he is in this situation on so many levels. He's improvising. He's hoping his points get through. He's hoping his points are good ones. He wants to save his family's lives via the message that many of them spent their lives in pursuit of. These are people who believe in peace. They believe in good works for others and human connection and healing the world. And again, I'm not a political guy, but... To differentiate the Israelis from different nationalities, it feels like something that may hurt the international efforts because when you speak about human beings, regardless of their nationality, I feel that it can resonate also with the Arab world because any human being is a human being. Yes, says Cohen. We will try, he tells Orr and Daphne Sella. Then he leaves to liaise or negotiate with emirs, emphasizing he'll use whatever message works. The sellers give way to Eli David, brother of hostage Ivatar David. He's one of the hostages that Hamas showed footage of bound and face down on the floor. Today, there is word, stronger than rumor, less than fact, of an impending deal. Perhaps the women and children will be released. That would not include Evatar and 150 or so other men, many old, mostly civilians. Yossi Cohen continues his work talking with the relevant go-betweens. The sellers continue on, hoping, waiting for better news, and an office building in Tel Aviv hums with so much more work to be done. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. We're back with the gist in which I play some of my reporting from Israel. And this was definitely the hardest day of reporting, even though I met relatives of the kidnapped, these, this was a time spent in a couple of the, the plural is kibbutzim, that are a kilometer, a couple kilometers from Gaza. Beri kibbutz was the one hit hardest. And some of the people we talked to are people 
who just flat out asked me, you have to go and you have to tell my story. So that's what I'm doing here. Like every kibbutz in Israel, kibbutz Beri is a community, but also an idea. The idea behind every kibbutz is the principle of collectivism, but the residents of Beri kibbutz believed in a specific kind of collectivism. They were the largest kibbutz in what's called the Gaza Envelope, the parts of Israel that abut the Gaza Strip. Israelis must live in this part of their country so that Jews live all throughout Israel, the thinking goes. And the Jews of the Barry kibbutz were a special kind of collectively organized Israelis. They were largely very liberal, peaceniks. They believed in cooperation, not just with each other, but with the residents of Gaza, who they forged ties with, who they invited to their homes, who they advocated for as partners in peace. Whatever claim or aspiration for peace was shattered on October 7th. An estimated 150 Hamas terrorists streamed into Barry and proceeded to lay siege to the residents of the kibbutz. Over 85 were murdered, about 30 were kidnapped. Sound you're hearing is from a video the terrorists posted online, boasting of their success. The terrorists operated undetected and unimpeded by Israeli forces for hours. They shot fired missiles at homes, and burned out residents who had retreated to safe rooms. A little over five weeks later, and Haim Yalim walks along these shattered tiles in the yard of one family's home. Yalim was once the head of the regional council in the Gaza envelope, and then was a member of Israel's parliament, the Knesset. He knew everyone in this community. As he speaks, you can hear the shelling of Gaza in the background. The war that started here is now just a few miles away. Yalim points out a house where terrorists killed a family of three and one where terrorists killed four. On the same street... He points out a house where a Barry resident got a good sniper position and was able to fire upon and kill several terrorists. Yalim next turns down another street. Here, every edifice is blackened. Most of the people who were killed were taken hostage, were taken from here, from this street. We step into the front yard of a charred home. The footsteps resonate on tile now strewn all over the yard. The roof was blown off when fire was set to the home and the interior exploded from the heat and built up gases. I, I brought you to this, ho- to this home because Rinat and Chen... Rinat was the mother. She worked with me. Eight years she was uh, in the welfare department of the regional council. And Chen, her son was uh, a child, uh, you know, a wild child that I raised up here. Yulim explains that he, in his safe room, was getting messages from the family who lived in this house. Help! Terrorists are attacking us. But what could he do, he asks. If he left his house, he'd be slaughtered. The family in this house had a similar choice. They fled the smoke and ran to the backyard. The family consisted of four children and two parents. 
בן 16 נשכב על האח הקטן. The older brother, 16, jumped on his little brother. והאימא על ילד אחר. And the mother on the other child. ובעצם שני הניצולים הם אלה שהיו מתחת ל... And the only children who survived are these children that the mother and the brother, the older brother protected. Yalim is not just anguish, though he's that. He's trying, he says, to be honest with himself, just as the government needs to be honest with itself. He says for years the government looked down on the terrorists, thinking they would not and could not pull off this kind of mission. He now knows better. Terror is their profession, and they know how to do it. But at times, his honesty darkens. It turns into something he recognizes as less than useful. It's feeling helpless that is so humiliating. As Jalim walks through the house of his friends, his neighbors, he stops to point out the most remarkable image on a wall. Before the attacks, outlined in the living room, there was a picture of a family. They were depicted facing away from the viewer, seated, adults and children sitting shoulder to shoulder, arms draped around each other. This picture was, Yalim explains, inlaid with tile or ornamental stone, which has now pressed the outline of that family into the wall. Everything else was burned away. The house is covered in soot and dust, just the beams and the bones of the sturdiest furniture, and this spectral image. It's too otherworldly to be believed, except there it is. Yalim vows to do everything he can to help his community, but he says he won't be able to talk about the events of the 7th any longer. This was his first time hosting visitors, and it will be his last. He speaks of the attacks as a kind of Shoah, not the Shoah of the six million, in his words, but the Shoah of a community, his community, burned and broken. So this is why I got the decision to, to host you here, something that I don't do ever. I will not do it again. It's so hard to me. Now I experience it. So you have a role now to tell the story. There's more than one story to tell in Israel, as I found. There's the story of political failure, of security disaster, of ongoing military conflict, and all the horrors that come with that. And as you heard when Yalim compares the flames here to the Shoah, this all fits in the existing story that made Israel a country. A country born of trauma, made to revisit that trauma more often, and as we saw in Barry, more acutely than most. The terrorist slaughter of innocents is unconscionable. You hear that description a lot. But the understanding that is brought to that heinous act is fundamental to understanding Israel's self-conception and helpful in comprehending the story that will propel the Israelis forward. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. This is the beginning of the show that I did on Friday. And the idea was I was just, whenever you go to a place, you just get a little sense of the zeitgeist. And I am always playing comparative politics. How is this culture different from the culture that I'm steeped in? And I'd also been informed by a book by Dan uh, Senor and Ross Douthit wrote a book about decadence. So I took the idea. I don't think decadence was in Dan Senor's book, but he talked about some statistics like Israel of OECD countries has the lowest teen suicide rate. They don't experience the deaths of despair. They consume the media and live in the world that we do, and in fact, live in a more dangerous world. Why is that? Why that they don't? Why don't they have the sort of mental anguish over everyday life that Americans do? And I came up with this as an idea. Israelis are living in reality. It's not an especially happy reality right now, but at least it's real. I mean, every society has stories they tell themselves, but in Israel, I detected much more of a shared existence than I see here. There is no widespread conspiracy theorizing about how October 7th was an inside job, how October 7th was a false flag. People have questions. There aren't great answers right now, but there's no cottage industry equivalent to QAnon or just the pure reality denialism in the public realm that you often see in the United States. In a word, I would say that Israel lacks the decadence of the United States. Decadence isn't a choice, it's a condition. And the comorbidities are abundance, safety, and lack of material friction or hardship. When war is a regular part of your life, decadence isn't really an option you can reach for. But I met young soldiers, 22, 26, newly minted lawyers or currently studying economics, politics, and philosophy, but they're also fighting in Gaza. And in the U.S., it's usually one or the other. You either study or you fight. Two different classes of people, and therefore they can opt for two different realities, two different life experiences. And mostly, if you look at the psychographics and demographics of the sectors of society that soldiers and full-time students are drawn from, they're entirely different as well. The Israeli youth are into TikTok and social media as much as the U.S. youth are. Hell, they call Israel startup nation. 18% of the country's GDP is in the tech sector. That's double that of the United States. But in Israel, they don't seem so bummed out about it. Some are religious. Some are studious. Most are resilient. All serve in the military. And when I speak of decadence in the U.S., I know I could come off like an Old Testament prophet or just old But I don't think decadence deserves punishment, as a prophet would. I think it describes the condition of our society, whereas it doesn't really apply to Israel. So I was speaking with the former Israel Central Bank Governor, Karnit Flug, and she expressed confidence that the economy there would recover. She also pointed out that Israel went from being a basket case of a GDP to debt ratio country, 284% in 1984. Last year, it was 60%. So for some perspective, economists worry when debt gets higher than 100% of GDP. In the U.S. last year, we were at an all-time high of 129%. If that's not a sign of decadence, consider the decadence of believing that 129% doesn't matter. You know, because reserve currency and the world is denominated in dollars and all that just doesn't matter. I think that's wrong. But even if it's right, it's still decadent. 
an argument that no, actually, there are no consequences for choices that should be consequential. If you want to be tethered to anything real and not have your thoughts and anxieties float off into conspiracies, you need things like consequences. I wouldn't wish a war upon us, of course not. But I don't know if I would define as peaceful our current American existence, abundance without satiety, concern without a cause, anxiety without actionable items. It's all just a little decadent. When you have an enemy who has declared that they want to kill you, it's dangerous, but it focuses the mind. The free-floating variety of doom and dread, it's less visible, it's more slow, but destructive in their own right. And that's it for today's show, which was really a week's worth of shows. The Gist is produced by Corey Warris, senior producer, Joel Patterson, Michelle Pesca, CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. If you want to advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. New Peru, G Peru, Do Peru. Thank you for listening. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.